If Christ is king, how should the Christian consider the kingdoms of this world? What does the Bible teach us about human authority and what it means to love our neighbors and our enemies? Before we render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, let's know what it means to render unto God what is God's. This is the Biblical Anarchy Podcast, the modern prophetic voice against war and empire. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Biblical Anarchy Podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute and part of the Christians for Liberty Podcast Network. This week and every week on Biblical Anarchy, we seek to live counterculture to the empire of man and instead seek the kingdom of God by unpacking what the Bible teaches us about government, authority, and human relationships. Today, for this episode, I am joined by another member of the Libertarian Christian Institute Christians for Liberty podcast network. His name is Alex Bernardo. Alex, how are you doing tonight? I'm doing great, man. Thanks for having me. Yeah, of course. So Alex and I have been on each other's shows technically, although he's never been on this show. I had him on my old podcast, the Daniel 3 podcast, and I'm going to have a link to that conversation in the show notes. We had a really interesting conversation about Protestantism and biblical inerrancy and things like that. And you know, it was a, uh, actually the last, we talked about this when you had me on your show a few months ago, but that was actually like the last episode other than like my, like goodbye sign off episode of the Daniel three podcast. So you always get that special honorary spot. So um, it was, it was truly an honor. <laughs> <laughs> it's good to have you on this podcast. There's probably a lot of carryover from my old show to this show and people who watch my show who already watch your show because we're part of the same podcast network, but just <laughs> For those who maybe aren't as familiar with you or hearing about you for the first time, could you go into a little bit of an introduction of yourself, what your background is, you know, and kind of what you talk about on your show? Yeah. So my name is Alex Bernardo, and I am the host of the Protestant Libertarian Podcast, and I have background in biblical studies. And so when I started the show, I wanted to do a show that combined ideas from biblical studies and theology with political philosophy and economics. And so on my podcast, there are sometimes that I have episodes that are more focused on the Bible, and then there are sometimes that I have episodes that are more focused on economics and political philosophy. But a lot of the times, I try to blend those two. And even when I choose episodes on biblical issues, I try to find like uh, biblical issues that are relevant to libertarians. So if you're interested in all that stuff, which I know if you listen to the Biblical Anarchy podcast, you probably are, I think you'd like my show too. Yeah, of course. And I highly recommend Alex's show. Alex has a lot of great interviews and conversations there, including one with yours truly. So <laughs> Wait, sure one, one of my best. One yes. of my best. <laughs> so go and check that out. So Alex, you and I, you're the one who did it first. And then I kind of took the plunge just because I don't know, I, I, I enjoy <laughs> punishing myself or something. I don't know. But we have the... Uh, honor of being the ones in the LCI circle who read Stephen Wolf's book, A Case for Christian Nationalism. You actually have done, so you have your own episode, I believe, where you went into that. I read the article that you put on the Libertarian Christian Institute's website, which I highly recommend people go and read that. It is rather lengthy, but trust me, it beats <laughs> reading the book. So... <laughs> And yes. then you also, so you unfortunately weren't able to come with us to Freedom Fest because you had a death in the family, but you were still able to remotely join us and do a presentation for our breakout session at Freedom Fest talking about Christian nationalism. And you kind of gave your perspective there as well on 
Stephen Wolf and his book, which in your own words is kind of like the seminal book now that people are talking about in this conversation about nationalism and Christian nationalism specifically. So I wanted to, at the beginning here, give you a chance to give like a, I don't know, three to five minute or however long you need to give a somewhat concise summary of not just what Christian nationalism is, but also like what Stephen Wolf and his take on Christian nationalism specifically is. And then we'll kind of go into the conversation from there, because since we both read his book and this is something that LCI has been focusing on, I thought that you and I being able to sit down and kind of further dissect this in a little bit more long form setting would be really interesting and beneficial to both our listeners. Yeah, I'm really excited about that. And there's only one other person that I've ever talked to that's actually read his book in its entirety. And so I'm really excited to talk to you about it too, just to get your perspective on it as well. But I think the long and short of the case for Christian nationalism is that Stephen Wolf is trying to define what Christian nationalism is, and then also describe how Christian nationalism would work in practice. And so he spends a lot of time in the first 20 to 30 pages of his book, setting up his definition of Christian nationalism. And for him, Christian nationalism is when a a nation of people are self-consciously Christian, and they try to enact laws and create a culture that reflects their Christian values. And so for him, this is what he terms Christian nationalism. He believes that in this Christian nation, those Christian laws and Christian customs are going to be for the good of all of the people that live in it, because the ultimate good is in God. And so Stephen Wolf thinks that if you can enshrine those principles in law, then that will lead to an optimal situation for for everyone living within the nation. And some of the examples of the laws that he wants to enact are not just like general laws, like don't murder, don't steal, things that you might find in the Ten Commandments, but they're very specific, such as laws against opening businesses on the Sabbath, laws against public profanity, things like that. So they're very specific laws that are based on Stephen Wolf's interpretation of Christianity. Within this Christian nation, there is still a distinction between what we might call like the civil and the theological sphere. So he believes that there would be like a civil government, and then that there would also be a church and that those would have two separate tracks. And his justification for that is that while the state can orient people towards the good, it's only the church that can change people's hearts. And so he does see a distinction between those two things there, but he has as the figure at the center of this Christian nation, this person that he calls the the Christian prince. And the Christian prince is supposed to be in a lot of ways, not like a president, but more almost like the Byzantine empire and the Caesaropapist system where he is in not in not in control of the church but he kind of directs the orientation of the church. And he's also supposed to embody all of the values of this Christian nation and not only help enforce those values upon the population, but also lead a life that shows by example what a real Christian ought to be. So that's the case that he makes in his book. What Stephen Wolf does, and I'm sure you picked up on this too, is Stephen Wolf is very good at defining terms when it comes to explaining what he means by Christian nation, but he's a lot more ambiguous and nebulous when it comes comes to how that would work out in practice. And so I think that he leaves the door open for quite a bit of violence and misunderstanding and that he doesn't tighten up a lot of his arguments on the back end. So I don't know how you thought I did on that explanation. Jacob, do you feel like that's pretty close to your take on what he said? Yeah, I mean, and what's funny is on like the Christian Prince, it's actually good timing. So yesterday, our colleague Carrie Baldwin shared on Twitter, and I don't know if she shared it in our group chat or not of all of our uh, 
LCI podcast hosts. But she shared a clip, not of Stephen Wilson, or Wilson, of Stephen Wolf. I just combined <laughs> Doug Wilson and Stephen Wolf into one person. Well, you know, <laughs> you know they, they more or less are. Might have, so might have been a Freudian slip on my part, but uh, <laughs> but Doug Wilson and Doug Wilson is, I believe, like the owner, or at least like heavily involved in like Canon Press, who published Stephen Wolf's book. So I mean, they are very much intertwined, and their ideas are very very similar. And Doug Wilson, in this panel he was talking on, basically said that when it comes to like Christian nationalism or like their sort of like warped view of post-millennialism, that we're supposed to kind of pray and wait and for basically what will amount to a sort of like political savior of a sort or like a political hero will rise up just like they they rose up many times in like the Old Testament and stuff. And so we have to wait for that. And then when that person arises, then we know that that's the time to act and to rally behind this person. And I was like reading that like, wow, that's similar to what like Wolf's rhetoric is regarding the Christian prince. And Carrie beautifully said, Doug Wilson is seeking a political messiah and he's apparently unsatisfied with the messiah that's prophesied <laughs> about in the old testament and revealed it. himself in the figure of jesus christ and i think that's just that's so true it's like yes there were these sort of figures that did rise up in the old testament but like they pointed to a greater figure that was going to arise later and so when jesus says my kingdom isn't of this world I have a hard time understanding how Christian nationalists reconcile that. And there's something very weird about Christian nationalists' arguments because to me, the way that they argue for, whether it's the, using the language of the Christian prince or not, the way they argue for the need for like a some kind of political bulwark to protect Christian values or something like that, or to advance Christianity into the world. And as you said, Wolf and Christian nationalist types like him are very ambiguous and they try to be as vague as possible. And that's what makes criticizing them so hard. And it's kind of like that Mott and Bailey approach where like they, they try to leave things as open-ended as they can. And then when you start to criticize them, they go, well, no, that's not what I want. I just want, you know, everyone to be Christian in the nation. You know what I mean? It's like, no, that's not exactly, you know, you're just trying to be uh, cute and defensive with your language. But, but yeah, there's something like a weird parallel between what Christian nationalists like Wolf talk about in terms of connecting like the political savior or the political figure element into this and with the Jewish objections to Jesus as Messiah. Because this is like what the Jews of the day and even in, in current history, they have a problem with Jesus as claiming to be the Old Testament Messiah because he's like, well, he didn't usher in a political kingdom. He didn't beat back Rome. You know, he didn't reestablish Israel. He's not bringing peace to all the nations. It's like, well, that's because he was speaking of an eternal kingdom. <laughs> and it's right. just like all, and so I have a hard time understanding how Christian nationalists don't see that they're basically like going backwards in terms of their political theology. Yeah. So and thoughts are on that. Yeah, no, I think you're absolutely right on that. And one of the most instructive books in the Bible on this for me is the book of Acts, because the book of Acts has two main characters, Peter in the first half and Paul in the second half. And in the first half of the book of Acts, it's the church basically in Jerusalem and Judea and the political authorities that they're dealing with, they're the Sanhedrin, like the leaders of the Jewish nation. And in Acts chapter four, there's this really like incredible scene where Peter and some of his accomplices have healed somebody and the Sanhedrin basically say, hey, you can't do that anymore. And he's just like, 
well, we're going to leave it up to God to determine whether or not we have to listen to you, but we just have to keep on going on preaching the gospel. So there was like no attempt for him to try to change the laws to protect Christianity or say, hey, you guys really need to change it. They're just going to go about doing their business. And then throughout the second half of the book of Acts, like Paul preaches the gospel to everyone that he comes in contact with. And he rubs up against a lot of very powerful people within the Roman Empire, like proconsuls, people who had reached the height of imperial power. He never advocates for a change in law. He never asks for any sort of legal protection. He never says that he wants a special carve out for Christians. What he says is we believe that Jesus rose from the dead. And this is the most important message that you'll ever hear. And we're going to preach it regardless of what the consequences are. And I think that that's such a great model for the church today. Like if we truly believe that Jesus is the Messiah, then we don't need these political protections because it's almost like that's not even the point. And the way that I've kind of conceptualized Christianity in relation to politics is that Christianity is super political. It's not that we don't have to deal with political issues because that's the real world that we live in. It's just that what we do as like gospel people goes beyond the political confines of our temporal world. And I think that Christian nationalism is just like, it's kind of an attempt to go backwards. Like we don't, we don't want to accept the reality of the gospel and just how big that is. Right. No, I like the way you put that. It's like supra political. It sort of like transcends the political systems or tendencies of like natural man, like the natural world. And then this comes to one of the things that Wolf talks about. And I know that was a big, this is something you go into a lot of detail on in your article, which was that Stephen Wolf basically makes the claim that nations and inherently also like civil governance are intrinsic parts of the creation and of nature, including pre-fall, which I think is a incredibly bold claim. And then it's like, well, what's your, what is your biblical source for that? And of course, that, that's, huh. this is the other criticism we have, which is that he even goes out of his way to say at the beginning, I'm not going to do biblical exegesis in making my case here, which I just thought that was so, it's a bit of a side thing, but it's sort of like a through line through this entire thing, which is when you ask Wolf to, where are you getting that idea in scripture? It's like, well, he kind of isn't. And half of his book is almost like footnotes and stuff where he's just quoting other people who are saying the same thing. So that's something I'd like to get your comment on. But also, if you could elaborate more on to what, I want to call it his argument, but I feel like I'm almost being charitable by calling it his argument because it's just an assertion that the state and the nation are just part of pre, are inherently part of creation and nature, including pre-fall creation and nature. What did you make of those assertions and the fact that a lot of other assertions that Wolf makes, he doesn't make any attempt to ground in scripture? Yeah, I definitely think we need to start with the fact that he does not make an attempt to ground his arguments in scripture because that's the most important flaw in his book. And he's, I mean, it's on page six. I memorized the page. It's on page 16 of the book if anyone wants to go and track this down. It's just breathtaking that he opens this book that's supposed to be the definitive explanation of Christian nationalism and says as a Protestant that he's not going to do He's not going to make an overarching attempt to interpret his framework of Christian nationalism in light of the scripture. And it's just amazing to me that he does that because really that's fundamentally what it means to be a Protestant. Like if you believe that you are a Protestant, you believe in the authority of scripture above all other sources of authority. And he just rejects that outright from the beginning. And so that should make anyone that's serious about the Protestant tradition, or even if you come from a Catholic background, I feel like the Catholics, at least when they do their theology, they try to integrate, like they sincerely try to integrate the scriptural witness into their theology. And he just doesn't do that at all. And he says that he relies on a handful. I guess he's from the reformed 
tradition or a particular version of the reform tradition. And he relies on like a very small number, like a very, like maybe two or three, and then a couple of quotes from Calvin sprinkled in there, just a very small number of reformed scholars and theologians. But then like, if you listen to the Reform Libertarians podcast, which Greg and Kerry host, they've done a lot of great work on Christian nationalism. It doesn't seem like the Reform tradition justifies it either. No. <laughs> I did want to get your, since you know more about the Reform tradition than, than I do, I kind of wanted to get your thoughts on that statement, because that is very breathtaking for him. No, to it's, it, yeah, because like you were, you were saying like, it's against the Protestant tradition, which like, of course it is. But I was like, within the Protestant tradition, and I don't know, maybe this is a little bit boasty or it might sound like I'm boasting, but I'm not trying to. But I think the Reformed tradition and Reformed Christians, whether you agree with them or not, they kind of make their entire reputation and like what separates them from other Protestant denominations that we take sola scriptura the most seriously, that like we are the most opposed to being led by traditions of man or traditions of the church. So anyway, it's just funny that he's like, he's like, I'm not going to rely on scripture. I'm going to rely on reformed tradition. It's like the way reformed tradition was explained to me was that it's all about the scripture. So I don't know. I feel like you have a little bit of a logical contradiction there, but yeah. And then what did you make of the idea of like the nation or the state being just like an inherent part of creation? Like I was just like, I mean, again, he doesn't really give much of an explanation there, but it does seem to be, it, it seems to me that's kind of one of the central thrusts of his argument is he's just kind of like, well, these things just exist a priori and they exist from God a priori. Therefore, if they're going to exist, we must make them Christian because why wouldn't we? Like that kind of seems to be the, the, if you're going to like give the 30 second summary of his arguments, that's a major part of them, I think. Yeah, I think that's a really good 30 second summary. And I think he just, there's just no biblical evidence for his point of view at all. And what's funny is that he says, and he makes this argument about, he calls it the prelapsarian government that before the fall, there would, that governments and nations like nationalism would have had to exist before the fall. And he does attempt to interpret Genesis kind of, but he does a very bad job of interpreting it. And I think that there are a lot of things going on in Genesis that he ignores. And obviously like Genesis chapter one and two, whatever, you, whatever however you take the days and all of it, we'll leave all like the creational aspect of it aside. What is very obvious from Genesis chapter two is that God creates this good world and he gives human beings the ability to flourish and take care of that world for him. And that's really the message of Genesis chapter one and two. And humanity is in, in that vision supposed to have always been united. And then you have the fall in Genesis chapter three, and then you have the situation with Cain and Abel. And it's not until we get to Genesis nine and the covenant that God makes with Noah, where we see the need for there to be some sort of arbiter. In that case, in Genesis chapter nine, it has to do with the taking of a human life. But that's really where the kind of the institution that we now call government or governance comes into play. And human beings aren't fractured and divided until Genesis chapter 11. And so he has this whole idea that human beings, because we naturally tend to gravitate towards people that are like us, that human beings would have had to have done that in a pre-fall world. But there's just no biblical evidence for that whatsoever. And one of the more like shocking claims that he makes as well is that not only would people would have not only would people have divided up into different nations, but that they would have had their own sets of laws and customs that were different from one another, and that they would also have to practice martial values, like they would learn have to learn how to fight and go to war before the fall. Like he he says this because that's just a part of nationhood, and none of that none. If you read Genesis one through eleven, the prologue to Genesis, there's just no evidence for that argument whatsoever. Did you kind of walk away with that same that same perspective? Yeah. 
Yeah, no, I was just like, what, where, like, where did you pull that from? Like, <laughs> I mean, it's funny because, like, if he hadn't said he was reformed, I would have assumed he was like Catholic or some like weird Gnostic or something. I'd be like, where, where, like, you know, I'd be like, there's something you're pulling from some kind of tradition that's not in in my Bible, at least. So, and we're kind of getting into another one of the points here, which is he talks about like people forming nations as natural, and okay, so there's like there's a bit there that like we can steal man that's somewhat true, which is that, yeah, I do think people have a natural tendency to like form associations or tribes or things that might even call them nations with people that they have something in common with. And people throughout history have definitely done this. I think that's a completely like, it's almost like self evident. You know what I mean? Like, so it's not even like a, I'm not, I'm trying to not even give him too much credit for making that claim because it's almost kind of like, <laughs> Oh, look, there are clouds in the sky. It's like, yes, people gather into groups of people that they have something in common with. And that is natural. And so, but then he makes this big rhetorical leap, which is like, okay, so nations are natural and people form these collectives because they have things in common and they want to associate with one another. And then it's like, dot, 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 Therefore, we need the power of the sword to enforce this natural phenomenon to make sure that they protect their... It's like, I don't get it. It's like, there's only two ways I can interpret it. The one way is you're saying that people naturally do this, but you think that you need the state or the nation, like some kind of sword to protect other people from trying to force their values on you which, okay, I could maybe see that to a point, although I still think there's a contradiction there because if you're saying people just naturally want to associate with people that they have stuff in common with, that doesn't really lead to, well, then they're going to want to force their values on you. But then it's like, okay, the quiet part he's not saying out loud here is exactly that, which is he's the one who doesn't like that there's other people who are going to form voluntary associations or sort of like gather with like-minded people, but the things that they're going to gather around or or their identities are not going to be the things that he believes in. And so uh, it's really hard for me to, it's like either, there's only, again, there's only two options. One, a complete logical contradiction. Just like, I mean, it's just a completely brain dead take in my opinion, because it's like natural phenomena needs power to, enforce the natural phenomenon it's like we don't need fiat to make gravity work you know what i mean natural phenomena is natural phenomena you don't need it's like we don't need force to make people procreate people procreate that's a natural you need force to stop people from procreating as we as we've seen different states and stuff intervene to to do that natural phenomena needs no assistance of force to keep it going therefore the only other conclusion you can make is he's the one who wants to enforce values and other people, which is, but then he's not making an argument from, well, this is just natural. He's saying he's using that as a, it's a disconnected syllogism or, or thesis that just doesn't hold. Right. And I really do think that he just fundamentally misunderstands biblical ecclesiology. This is one of my favorite aspects of the reform tradition is that they've always done ecclesiology very well and that you have the church, which is the united Jew plus Gentile community, the family of Abraham united in the Messiah, and you have the rest of the world. And those are the two categories of human beings. And the church is, again, it's like Paul says at the end of Galatians chapter three, there's no Jew nor Greek, male nor female, slave nor free. All of those things that divide human beings up are not 
they're not completely erased in Christ, but they're marginalized. Those identities don't matter. The only identity that we have is faith in the Messiah. And this is consistent throughout the Bible. So Romans, Galatians, and Ephesians are all about the united family of God. And at the end of Galatians, Paul even calls the church the Israel of God. So the only way that you can say, like if we're going to have a Christian nation, it has to include all Christians from all over the world, regardless of their ethnicity or nationality. Like that is the people of God. And I think that he fundamentally misunderstands that. And then he also misunderstands that the people of God is completely voluntary, voluntarily constituted, that you have to decide to put your faith in the Messiah. That's not something that somebody can force. And I know he makes rhetorical overtures to that in his book. He says, okay, well, the state really can't compel something that happens on the inside, but he basically thinks that it can. And if you have a quote unquote Christian government, that this would lead more people to faith, but you can't do that. And there's no biblical evidence whatsoever that the church tried to export its values onto society. It was a witness to society, but people had to voluntarily choose both to follow Christ and then to live by the values and the morals that arise from that commitment. And all of that, which is, uh, those are both, those are principles that are shared all across the Protestant spectrum. All of that is just completely lost in his argument. Yeah. And it, it, this is something that the wolf gets wrong. This is something that that like theonomists and other nationalist types within Christianity get wrong. And just this idea of what is the proper role of the church? What is the proper role of like the sphere of civil governance? And they have this idea that like it's almost the way I conceptualize it. Like they're almost making government a sacrament that they view as a means of grace. So it's like, I'll at least grant them that I don't think what they're saying is that we can, that they would, the state can save you and, or that law or the sword or compulsion will save you. But rather, I think they almost believe this, that the state and the sword of civil governance can be used as a means of grace. So basically like if we incentivize everything around you to basically push you towards acting as a Christian, that this will, like, I don't know, like, step one, compel people to act like Christians. Step two, question mark. Step three, they become regenerate and elect. It's like, it doesn't really make a lot of sense, but it's like, that's almost kind of what they are saying. Is that like, which obviously there's no biblical basis for that, (laughs) but but that's almost like what they're acting out, that they think that it's like, the law can be used as this weird sort of sacrament. And it's like in the same way that like, I think of like Lutherans or Catholics act like baptism can be this sort of like means of grace that sort of like can be used by God to mark someone as part of the covenant and bring them into the kingdom and things like that. But it's like, again, that's, I don't want to go off to a tangent there, but I don't know. That's kind of the way it comes across to me. And again, there's no biblical basis for that. I think The church and the sacraments of the church are what God uses as means of grace. I mean, I'm not against the idea of God using things. And I guess technically God can use the state to bring people towards him, but that's not normative, right? Like God can use a lot of things. Like I've heard people that have had weird psychedelic trips and then come to Christ. And it's like, listen, God can use that. I mean, God can use a donkey to talk. You know what I mean? God can use all sorts of things, but that doesn't mean that those are the normative means that he will use. It just means that God is sovereign and will use anything he deems necessary within his prerogative to use. So there is something weird there. And I don't know, to me, 
I think what Wolf and other Christian national types are getting at, and I guess I want to hear you talk about this, is that what I see at play here is that what's really motivating them is not a desire to see people saved or led to Christ. It's rather a desire to wield power on behalf of their intolerance, is that they have this intolerant mindset towards non-Christians, towards sinners, and particular types of sinners, and what they would label as degeneracy, and they would label as the breakdown of the culture and society. And to be fair, I would, to some extent, agree with them on certain things being sinful and criticisms of our society. People are turning away from God and embracing a very like self-deistic, hedonistic, sort of like secular religion. I've often compared wokeism to like a this weird secular religion that's like a zombified version of Christianity. And so, I mean, fair enough, I'll agree with them in criticizing those things. But then their response to it is like hatred and intolerance. And we need to punish those things. And it's like through punishing those things, we will then create the means by which God can act and lead people back to the church and embracing the gospel. It's like, but A, I don't think that holds because I don't think God is waiting for us to inflict coercion upon people in order to, I mean, this is like, to me, a whole denial of Reformed theology, which is that the idea of Reformed theology being that God is totally sovereign in the (laughs) means of, of, of administering regeneration and salvation. He's not waiting on you to pass some law to work through. And then beyond that, it's like, you are now actually, I think, distorting what the true vessel that Jesus is and the Holy Spirit are supposed to work through is the church, not the state, not the sphere of civil governance. He's supposed to act through our acts of service, through what Jesus told us to do, through caring for the least of these, the orphan, the widow, the poor, through washing people's feet. Like we're supposed to be servants to the world and our witness is what advances the gospel and the kingdom of God. And instead they're distorting that and saying, no, we need to use the sword. Even though like, I mean, Jesus literally says, and you bring this up in your presentation and article, Jesus said, if you live by the sword, you die by the sword. I don't take that to mean pacifism. I take that to mean literally, if you put your faith in using the sword to advance the kingdom of God, your faith isn't in the kingdom of God. Your faith is in your own efforts and your will to control and dominate those around you. Yeah, I think that was a great explanation. I, I really want to focus on that kind of the subjectivity of Christian law and Wolf's book because it's like we were saying earlier, he's very specific when it suits his argument and he's very nebulous when it doesn't. And a part of the problem with Christian nationalism is let's assume that you take over a nation, whatever that might be. And even the term nationalism is fairly subjective because it's, me- it's meant different things over different periods of time for different people. But let's say that you- he was able to take over a nation or a state and impose his whatever version of the reform tradition he claims to be a part of, he's able to reform or he's able to impose those values through the force of law. Okay, that's fine. But the problem with nations is that leaders come and leaders go. And so what happens if Stephen Wolf's Stephen Wolf creates this great nation, but then in 20 or 30 years, there's another voting block or another group of Christians that that rises up, takes power, and then they impose their own version of Christian nationalism. And all of a sudden, Stephen Wolf winds up being in 
outlaw because he holds a different set of Christian beliefs. And this is one of the fundamental problems with Christian nationalism is that the Christian part always relies on the subjective theological preferences of the people that hold power. And you can't assume, and this is like a kind of a Hayekian insight. And actually it really goes back to Tolkien. I think a lot in Lord of the Rings is really a great commentary on power and everything like that is that once you establish system of power, like systems of power, you don't just get rid of them. People that are against you will just take them over and use them against you as well. And that's the reason why the ring has to be destroyed at the end of the Lord of the Rings, because it doesn't matter how virtuous the person who's wearing it is, it's going to corrupt you, right? And the same thing is true with power. And so Stephen Wolf never really addresses that fundamental problem. So where is he deriving his Christian values from that he's going to impose on the rest of society? And then what happens if his group of Christians winds up being on the outside? And historically, like we have a great example of just how disastrous this, this is in the period between the Reformation and the Peace of Westphalia in 16. 48, Europe acted along exactly those lines. And the nations and kingdoms of Europe, they fought not just for theological reasons, but that was a main purpose. And it was just complete chaos. Like it was nothing but a nonstop warfare and bloodshed and violence. And it seems like he hasn't learned his lesson from history and would rather live in a world where we return to that state of affairs instead of the classically liberal one that we have inherited from the Enlightenment. I just, I, I don't, I just think he makes a fundamental mistake, and he doesn't think through the long-term consequences of creating those systems of power in his Christian nation. I think what leads to his wanting to create those systems of power and not understanding the problem there, and I think what's motivating him to want to do it is that ultimately, Wolf does not view things through the lens of the individual, which I think. Now, listen, I do believe in the idea of the corporate church and the body of Christ, and so. There is a corporate element to practicing our religion and our faith. But ultimately, salvation, this is one of the things that Paul talks about in, I mean, like Hebrews and Romans and so many parts of the New Testament, which is that salvation does not come through being the member of a group of people. You know what I mean? Or at least not like a group yeah. of people in terms of like a nation. Like, I guess now the group of people is just God's elect, but really like but what makes you part of God's elect is that your individual salvation, which is your individual faith in Christ as your Savior and believing that he died for you to be part of, of his kingdom and his nation and that he has called you to be his, you know, that he's identified you as his son or daughter. So that's a very individual, very personal sort of view of salvation. That's what salvation is. It's very personal and it has that corporate element to it. But Wolf is ultimately his nationalist arguments lead him to be very collectivist. And everything that we do, he often talks about things in these very, like, honestly, when you read them, like, I have some quotes here. They're very creepy. Like, they're very creepy and collectivist. <laughs> and, like, you would think that you were listening to, like, a like like literally a fascist or a socialist. Like, one here, one here is, like, he says, it is also evident from both instinct and reason that we ought to prefer our own nation and countrymen over others. This is, this instinct is not, from the fall or due to sin, it is natural and therefore it cannot be bad. It's like, again, no biblical basis for that. Also, it's like, as you just said earlier, we're told in the New Testament that all these identities, male, female, Jew, Greek, free, slave, that these are subservient identities to our identity in Christ. That is what matters most. So, no, we're not to, I mean, maybe it's natural that we have a preference for our own. That doesn't make it good, though. I mean, it's natural. It's so dumb. It's natural and therefore good. It's like, um, it's natural for 
men to want to sleep around with different women. It's natural that when someone insults you, you want to beat the crap out of them. It's natural that when you see something that, you know, something nice, your neighbor has a nice car. It's natural that you're going to covet that car. That doesn't make them good. <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. So it's just, A, it completely flies in, in, in the face of what the Bible says there. One of his quotes, which we were all joking about in the chat, I wanted to read on the podcast, that's really creepy. <laughs> He says, a mother nursing her child has the child's immediate good in mind, but that action as part of the totality of action in the nation is also for the national good, for well-nursed children grow up to be healthy, productive, and sacrificial participants in the nation. And in this way, the nursing of children is a national action for the good of the nursing is not only for the child's good directly, but for the nation's good. It's like, <laughs> it's just like, I well, mean, you know, go ahead. <laughs> Oh, I was just, I mean, that, if you, I don't know if you've ever read Mussolini's The Doctrine of Fascism, where Mussolini yeah. outlines his political program for Italy, but that could be taken word for word yes. from yes. Mussolini. Yes. Well, what that's I what did, fascism is. That's what I did for our, you, you weren't able to make it and hasn't been released yet, but the intro I did for our session that Friday was I just started reading wolf quotes and saying, who is this? Is, it, is this Mao or Mussolini <laughs> or Hitler or Stalin? And people are just guessing. And I was like, wait, no, these are all Stephen Wolf from the case for Christian nationalism. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like, it is totally bizarre. I mean, just the idea, but it really speaks those quotes. And there's so many more I could pull from the book just show that Wolf is not engaging on an individualistic lens. He's engaging on a very collectivist lens, which I think is just... Again, there is, I won't deny the corporate element of our religion and of the gospel, but ultimately, like our rights, our individual rights, our our call to submit to God's word in terms of like submitting to his moral law, that ultimately falls on individuals to do. You know what I mean? Now, he, I think he, he and other Christian nationalists will try to like point to parts in the Bible where it's like, well, sometimes the sin of the father falls on the entire family. And I think that that's kind of like a gross misuse of scripture there, because I think he's kind of conflating two entirely different things. Cause it's like, yeah, you can have like generational consequences to sin, but that's not to say that like on a personal level, like you're not, if your father is unrepentant, never comes to Christ, you are not condemned for eternity for what your father did. You know what I mean? So it's like there, and in no legal system, would it be like, Oh, your father was a thief. Therefore, we've like put a T on your hand and labeled you a thief as well. It's like, no, like none of that collectivist mindset maps on to biblical morality or teaching. So, I mean, I don't know. I don't know if that was something that really struck you too, just how much he really makes everything about the collective good, the national good. I mean, it's basically this, you might as well have a line in there that says like, we Christian are Borg. Like, I mean, that's kind of right. how he views what, like, what Christians should be, is that we should almost be this weird sort of hive collective and everything we do should serve the national good, which is like, well, no, we're supposed to be advanced. The only nation we should be advancing, or the only kingdom we should be advancing is God's kingdom, not, not any kingdom of man. Right. No, I think that's absolutely correct. One of the really frustrating things about this too is that Stephen Wolf has been the lightning rod for a lot of progressive criticisms of Christian nationalism. And of course, all the progressives call him a fascist, but I'm so torn because I'm like, I know that you progressives have no idea what you're talking about when you use the term fascist, but you're actually right in this right. case, because in reality, <laughs> he, he really is. But that was one of the points that I made 
in the video that I recorded for the panel discussion is that Stephen Wolf is very good at crouching medieval ideas in the language of classical liberalism. And so he makes it sound as if his views are compatible with the post-Enlightenment political worldview. But in reality, it's a return to ancient medieval conceptions of kind of collective collectivism and collective thought. And in the ancient world, nationalism was obviously, and this is true for most of the Middle Ages as well, nationalism was in large part a result of ethnicity and geographic boundaries. So people grew up in areas, they had very little mobility, they couldn't travel. And so nations or tribes, as it might be better called, were formed on that basis. Whereas like in the modern world, when we think about nationalism, especially in an American context, nations are defined by political ideals. And America is supposed to be like, you know, life, liberty, and property and things like that. And so when Stephen Wolf is talking about nationalism, he is referring back to that ancient and medieval conception of the term, but making it sound as if his understanding of nationalism is compatible with our modern liberal in the classically sense sensibilities of uh, society and government. And that's just not the case. And so he's very good at making that, that distinction. But you're absolutely right. I thought your analysis is spot on there. He's ultimately like all fascists and communists. He's ultimately a collectivist. And he ultimately believes at the end of the day in the power of the state and that human identity should be in subservience to the state. And that's just not a very biblical way of looking at it because our identity should be subservient to Jesus and to one another. And that's just not a part of his analysis at all. No. In everything, he often says, and so this goes back to the beginning, where it's like he just assumes a priori that like nationalism is just part of creation and governance is part of creation. And he's like, those things should be, so he makes the argument that like another key point of his overall argument is that because these things exist, they should be taken under the stewardship of Christians and made to serve Christian interests. And it's like, okay, maybe on like a very like zoomed out level, I don't necessarily disagree that we should take things in the world and try to transform them to like be compatible with what like what we believe or to be compatible with scripture or to to be used to advance things that we as Christians want to advance. I just think he's ultimately wrong about the things that we as Christians should value. And this is where right. I think he's distorting the gospel because what he's essentially done is like brought us back into like a very works-based religion. I mean, I'm just like, have, have these people never read Galatians? <laughs> like, like, I mean, it is, it is a gospel of grace. Now, I believe, and I know you believe too, in the necessity of civil justice. And so, I think sometimes mm-hmm. when people hear that, like, we reject the use of the sword, or they hear Jesus telling Peter that, like, if you live by the sword, you die by the sword, that our rejection of violence means that we want to live in a, that we're pacifists, or that we would do nothing in the face of evil. And it's like, well, no, I don't believe in that. I believe in the proper role of civil governance, which I believe is talked about in passages like Romans 13, which is for the administration of civil justice, which is for the protection of the innocent and the restraining of those who do evil. I just think that's necessarily, I mean, first of all, that authority has to be necessarily limited. And I think that Mm -hmm. it's used in the pursuit of like rights violations, it's not to be used in the pursuit of enforcing the entirety of Scripture upon people because that would be to ignore the parts of Scripture where Jesus makes it clear that he doesn't want to use force to compel people into, into faith or into doing the right thing. Jesus wants 
it reminds me of that passage where he says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. And I think yeah. what Stephen Wolf is doing is creating this like legalistic mindset in which all the sin that exists in the world has to be, there has to be like punishment or justice, justice exacted upon that. But like, hold on a second. Do you not believe in the cross? Because the wages of sin were paid on the cross. Like, I believe that God is the arbiter of justice and of true vengeance. And actually in Romans 12, it says that vengeance belongs to him. We are not to repay evil for evil, but rather to overcome evil with good. So when people are like, you know, if they're not murdering or stealing or raping or et cetera, if they're not violating property rights or initiating aggression, which that's the only legitimate use of the sword of civil governance is in the protection of innocent people from people who do those kind of things. Everything else falls under the purview of God ultimately. But what God has chosen to do is instead of judging the world, which he would have the right to do. I mean, that's a big part of reformed theology. And I think also Christian theology is we would not say that God owed us anything. The wages of sin are death. We brought that upon ourselves and God will be completely just in letting us die in our sin and live in eternal separation from him. But instead, God decided that, no, I'm going to conquer sin and death. I'm going to send my son and he is going to die on the cross. He is going to you, and in doing so, he is going to declare himself the Messiah, the Christ. He is going to usher in, in my kingdom. He's going to restore what was lost. And that is because God's heart, although yes, God's essential nature of being goodness requires justice, I believe that that was satisfied on the cross. And now we live under a covenant of grace where, yes, we still have to restrain evil to a certain extent, but for the most part, we are supposed to trust that God is at work and that he is drawing people to him, giving them the chance to repent. And then if they don't, then we leave them and their sin up to God. The role of administering justice for sin is not the role of the church. And I think that is ultimately one of the major errors that Wolf makes. And ultimately, it's a distortion of the gospel message. Yeah, I completely agree. And I, I make this point in a couple of passages in my review, but there, there are a couple of passages that have been very influential for me and my faith personally that I think are very relevant here. The initiation of violence is completely off limits for Christians. And I think that that's fundamental to our understanding of the cross and the gospel and kind of the classic passage for this. And I think maybe one of the most important passages in terms of Christian ethics in the New Testament is Philippians chapter two, where Paul tells his audience, starting in verse five and goes through 11, where Paul tells his audience to have the mind of of Christ, have this attitude in yourselves that was also in Christ, and then talks about how Christ was both became a man, became incarnate, and then died a death on the cross. And it was because of that that God exalted him so that every knee would bow before him. And so the way to power is not through wielding the sword and domination and force and coercion. The way to power is through loving and serving and sacrificing for other people. That's like that's the only way to do it. And that completely inverts the 
power structures of the ancient world. And that has to be the way that we as Christians understand power. And I'm, I'm with you on that. And I think one of the things that I, I wasn't maybe as clear about in my review that I could have been more clear about because I was trying to address Wolf on his own terms is that I'm not a, I'm not a pacifist. I do believe that there is a role of self, like for self-defense, the defense of others. And you have to have some sort of civil arbiter. Like I'm, I'm a Lockean to the core. So I definitely understand that. But none of those include the initiation of violence towards right, somebody exactly. who's not trying to harm somebody, right? And then the other one is Revelation chapter five, where it's, you know, John's scene of the throne room and Jesus is sitting at the right hand of the father. And it says that he is the Messiah and he's collected people from all nations, from every tribe and every tongue and every nation. And the reason why he's able to rule over them and the reason why he is in charge of the kingdom is not because he dominated with the sword, but because he was the lamb that was sacrificed. And so it's Jesus's willingness to take violence upon himself for the sake of others. That is the key to him being the king of the the entire world. And that's very fundamental, both to our theology of the kingdom of God and the New Testament and to Christian morality. Like that is the model upon which we as Christians are supposed to build our lives. It's cruciformity. Like our lives should look like the cross. We have to love other people in the same way that God loved us. And Stephen Wolf just has no concept of that. Instead, he wants to use the very temporal, very worldly powers of domination and force and the initiation of violence in order to coerce people to do things that they otherwise wouldn't do. And one of the reasons why I think there are so many people that are leaving Christianity right now, and he has a whole chapter at the end of his book on all of these cultural problems that we're facing in the 21st century. But one of the reasons why I think Christianity is so unpopular in the United States is because at least from the 1980s on, Christians have been much more politically active. And there's been a large attempt like with the moral majority in the 1980s to impose Christian values on American society. And I think that that turns people off. And I think we were talking about this at the very but before we started recording day but you said something that i thought was really great about that is that when christians try to grasp for power themselves they wound they wind up compromising their morality and then compromising their witness and i think that the american church has done that by trying to grasp yes. for political power and stephen wolf is just like the ultimate embodiment of that that political movement i agree i think if we're to be christian and i i love the way you put it if we're to be cruciform if we're to be molding ourselves to the example of Christ and what he did in the cross and in the empty tomb and in his ministry. And then we try to grab political power. There's only two things that can happen. Either because the example of Christ and the Holy Spirit, we're trying to live after that example and the Holy Spirit's living in us, that will ultimately make us abandon the pursuit of power because we won't be able to hold on to it because we won't have in us the capacity or the will to dominate others or to initiate force to compel them to obey the scripture. Or that should be what happens if Christians try to go down that route. They should immediately turn away from it and realize they can't. If they don't, then the only other option is they abandon trying to be Christ-like. And then they end up going yeah. back to, like I said earlier, like they, they end up kind of becoming the sort of political saviors, quote unquote, that the Jews were looking for. And looking for people to come and usher in this godly kingdom that will bring peace. But we cannot do that. If there's anything that we learned through the Old Testament is that even a godly nation chosen by God, because that nation is ultimately human and because it's ultimately limited and earthly, it cannot bring peace to this world. Rather, the only way that peace can be brought to this world is through Christ. And that is what we believe that Christ will ultimately do at the end of days. And right now we are to live live with that promise, which is both now and yet to come. 
and to go proclaim that good news. You know, that's something that we've talked about a lot in the months leading up to this, is that an essential part of the gospel message, I believe it obviously includes salvation, obviously includes the cross, the empty tomb, and all that, but it also includes the declaration that Jesus is king, that when he became the Messiah, when he declared himself to be the Christ, that was the ushering, that was saying that the kingdom of God is not this far-off, distant thing in the future. It, it is now, and, yeah. and we need to be ambassadors of that kingdom to the world. But if we're going to be ambassadors of Christ, we have to live as Christ did. And Christ didn't live by going around initiating violence against people to get them to follow him or get to get them to stop sinning. You had this really good point on Twitter, like in the past couple of days, and you and I had a little back and forth on it, and I, I liked the way it went. You said the left focuses too much on some aspects of the scripture and the right focuses too much on other aspects of the scripture and both of those aspects are true, and we need to live them out at the same time. And one of the greatest examples of living out both wanting to oppose sin, but also wanting to love our neighbors, we have to integrate that into one like cohesive model. And that model is Christ. And one example of that is, is the, uh, how he handled the adulterer. He stood before her and the crowd between them and said, he without sin cast the first stone. And said, I do not condemn you, but go and sin no more. That is what we have to do. We, we need to give people the good news of the gospel and say, like, you don't need to live at enmity with God anymore. You don't have to live separated from God. You don't have to live in bondage to sin or be enslaved to sin. And But you know what? The only way to be free from that isn't the power of the sword, and it isn't through your own effort. It's through faith in, in Christ and the grace that, that he and his spirit can give you. And I, I just you don't see that coming through the pages of Wolf's text. All you see is a desire to control people, to dominate people, and ultimately to rob from God that which is his, which is to take vengeance upon sinners. But it's clear in scripture that that prerogative to exact vengeance upon sinners belongs to God and not us. And he's chosen instead to offer and extend mercy and grace. Yeah. And I mean, I, the only reason why I'm a libertarian is because I'm a Christian first. Like I'm glad I love Mises and Rothbard and Hayek and all those great libertarian thinkers because they've confirmed and deepened a lot of my like Christian priors. But I remember when I first became a Christian, the first thing that I did was I read through the gospels and I was like 14 years old the first time that I read through the gospel of Matthew. And I just remember Matthew chapter 13, the parable of the wheat and the weeds, where Jesus says, you know, like the kingdom of God is coming. It's this parable where there's a farmer that goes out and he sows good seed. And then one of his enemies comes and sows weeds and the weeds grow up among the wheat. And his harvesters ask if they should try to pull up the weeds before they harvest. And the farmer says, no, because if you do that, you're going to wind up pulling up the wheat along with the weeds. And we're going to wait until the very end of the harvest and then we'll cut everything out and we'll separate them then. And that always had such a huge impact on me because I realized from reading that forward that I cannot compel other people to come to faith in Christ. I just can't do it. I have to live out my faith and God's going to sort that out in the end. And then again, you have like the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says, you know, why does the path that leads to destruction narrow is the path that leads to life? It's our choice to decide which path we're, gonna, we're going to live on. We cannot force somebody who's walking down the wide path to change directions and walk down the narrow path. They have to make that choice for themselves. And as Christians, I think we just have to learn to live with that tension. And I think everything you said was so beautiful 
beautiful. Like it is, if you look at New Testament morality, we're supposed to show other people the gospel through the way that we as Christians treat one another and through the way that we serve others. And I think that we desperately need more of that. And we desperately need much less of whatever it is Stephen Wolf and the Christian nationalists are trying to push because they're definitely going in the wrong direction. No, yeah, I mean, absolutely right. And it infuriates me because they are, I mean, to me, they are taking the, the not just our religion and the title of Christian, but they're taking the name of God and Christ in vain. And to me, that's like some people, I think, who aren't Christians or who have a very, I don't know, maybe like, you know, immature or undeveloped understanding of scripture think that the second commandment is about like, or not the second commandment, the, uh, which one of the, uh, the third or the fourth about not taking the name of God in vain. It's like, yeah, that does not really mean, um, although I think we should be careful. There's many passages about us trying to be careful with our tongues and be careful not to swear and, uh, our mouths can speak life or destruction. And so I'm not taking away from that, but ultimately taking the name of God in vain is much more about our actions than our words, or at least about like what we're advocating for. And God is less concerned with like a slip of the tongue when like, you know, you stub your toe or you're angry or you just say something that (laughs) is part of the common vernacular and cares more if like, it's basically what Jesus says when that there will be those who said, I did all these things in my name and he'll say, depart from me. I never knew you. When you say you're doing things in the name of God, but really you're not, you're doing it in the name of some other ideology or in your own self-interests, that is an affront to God. It's robbing God's glory. It's distorting the character of who he is and his goodness. And the only thing I can say is that if you've done that, be thankful that God is merciful and gracious and yes. get on your knees and repent. That's a, that'd yeah. be my best advice to people like Stephen Wolf and others, which is that like, I mean, I don't, I don't want to see, I, I don't hate them. I just, I want to see them repent and embrace the true gospel. Alex, it's been great having you on. We're at the end of this hour here, but I want to give you the last word on this subject on Christian nationalism on, on, you know, Wolf and all that. What are the key points again here at the end to summarize of what Christian nationalists get wrong and like, what would be sort of like your sign off message to the people listening to this, especially to the Christians listening to this as to how we need to respond to Christian nationalists and then how we should respond to people who have the wrong idea of Christianity because of Christian nationalists. So how can we, how can we push back on both of those and and help to uh, be better ambassadors and, courageous warriors for the kingdom of God? Yeah, there's there, there's a lot there. There's a lot of great questions. I think that the most important thing to realize about Christian nationalism is that it doesn't make sense within any Christian theological tradition. One of the really cool things about the panel discussion that we had at LCI is that we have people that come from the reform tradition. You know, I know like you, Jacob, and then Greg and Carrie, they come from the reform background. Norman comes from the restoration movement. I'm more Wesleyan in my background. And then we had a Catholic too, Ryan McMakin, on the panel with us. And in all of those different traditions, for all of that theological diversity, Christian nationalism just doesn't work. And I I've had on my show like Cody Cook, who is more of a pacifist than I am, and then Stephen Anglis, who's Reformed, but he's a Baptist pastor, so a little bit of a different variety of Reformed theology. And we all agree that Christian nationalism just doesn't work biblically, theologically, historically. There's just nothing to it. I think that the ultimate antidote to Christian nationalism when it comes to presenting the church to the world, because there are a lot of people, there are a lot of progressives in particular that look at Christian nationalism and assume that that's what mainstream Christians believe. And I think that we have to make better 
better political arguments. We have to make better biblical arguments and say, you know what? No, this is an aberration. This is a rejection of historic Christian values and of historic Christian teachings. But then we also have to demonstrate that like our lives are better than the lives of the Christian nationalists. I follow a lot of these people on Twitter and some of them are just truly awful human beings that have no love in their heart for other people whatsoever. And I think that if we as Christians can embody the Christ and embody that servant mentality and try to show the world the love of God through the way that we treat each other and through the way that we treat other people, that's the winning formulation, really. And I mean, going back to the earliest church, I'll end on this point right here. If you look at Eusebius, the first church historian, chronicles the first 300 years of the church from the death of Christ to the rise of Emperor Constantine, there was no desire by the church to gain any sort of political power. And there were, in fact, quite a lot of Christians that had to suffer and die for their faith. But the church continued to grow because of the powerful witness that they gave to those that were living in the Roman Empire. And I couldn't think of a better antidote to Christian nationalism than actually living out our faith. I agree. And I think there's a lot of Christians who see that they don't have dominance in the culture anymore, that that churches are, are shrinking here in America. They're growing in other places, right? But it's like, where is the church growing right now? Like, it's not so much in America. It's not so much in Europe. It's in like Africa and China. Yeah. And the church has no dreams of political power in either of those places. So maybe that's a sign of that the political power element is actually not only not necessary to spreading the gospel, but it might actually be a like a roadblock that we need to let go of or an anchor that's weighing us down. And I mean, I think the Western and American churches can either untie themselves from that anchor as quickly as possible, or they're just going to continue to sink. So Alex, yeah, and I, I just want to, I, I got to yeah. say too, just to, just to throw this in here, cause it's always important. Any country that has a central bank and never ending wars is not a Christian nation. So we shouldn't yes. pretend that the United States ever was. <laughs> Absolutely. Alex, I really appreciate you coming on to talk about this. We could probably go on for like two or three more hours if we had the time, but could you please also, before you go, just plug your podcast and tell people where they can find you on social media and stuff like that? Yeah, thanks. And again, I really appreciate having me on tonight, Jacob. This has been a lot of fun. Great conversation. My podcast is the Protestant Libertarian Podcast. You can all you can obviously find it on the Libertarian Christian Institute's website, but it's on iTunes, Spotify, anywhere you want to get your podcast except for YouTube because I'm afraid of what I say about COVID and getting banned and all that kind of stuff. Uh, and then you can follow me on Twitter. My handle is at ProLibertyPod. Awesome. Well, thank you, Alex, for coming on again. Everyone listening, please make sure if you don't listen to, and to Alex's podcast, you're not already subscri- subscribed to, to do so. And also check out other the other great content creators we have on the Christians for Liberty Network. And all the links to that will be in the show notes. That's it for today's episode. And I will talk to you all again next week. Take care. The Biblical Anarchy Podcast is a part of the Christians for Liberty Network, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute. If you love this podcast, it helps us reach more with a message of freedom when you rate and review us on your favorite podcast apps and share with others. If you want to support the production of the Biblical Anarchy Podcast, please consider donating to the Libertarian Christian Institute at biblicalanarchypodcast.com, where you can also sign up to receive special announcements and resources related to biblical anarchy. Thanks for tuning in.